Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual duplet today. Josh White will investigate the continuing rot of Britain. And Felicia Cornblue will examine the history of the fight for abortion rights in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Over the last decade, Britain has had a series of dismal Tory prime ministers. David Cameron, in office from 2010 to 2016, whose response to the financial crisis was a deep, homegrown austerity program, the totally forgettable Theresa May, who ran the country for the next three years, the often amusing but chaotic and cynical Boris Johnson, 2019 to 22, who left in scandal and disgrace, Liz Truss, who lasted not quite two months, forced to resign after presenting a ludicrous budget based on tax cuts and heavy borrowing, which resulted in what has been dubbed the moron premium, a penalty of higher interest rates on British bonds imposed by the markets, and now Rishi Sunak, a Goldman Sachs alum about whom it's hard to say much of anything other than that he's the country's first prime minister of Asian origin. At the same time, the Labour Party went through a series of internal convulsions marked first by the ascent of the left-winger Jeremy Corbyn to the leadership and then a concerted and successful attack on him by the British establishment and the Labour right. His successor, Keir Starmer, is a charmless centrist who wants to revive the old Tony Blair magic, such as it was. For much of that time, the country has had to cope with the consequences, domestic and foreign, of the Brexit referendum by which it left the European Union. This period can best be described by the title of a Thomas Mann novella, Disorder and Early Sorrow, appropriately enough, The Profile of a Declining Family. My first guest, Josh White, is just out with a book, Goodbye United Kingdom, about this trajectory of decline. It's published by The Battleground, a web scene, thebattleground.eu, now expanding into another medium. Josh White. You're on the show, what, almost three years ago, just after Keir Starmer uh, became the leader of the Labour Party. I don't think you had much in the way of high hopes for him, but uh, (laughs) how's he turned out? How's he doing? He's turned out even worse than I expected. Because I think at the time when we we spoke about him, I basically thought that he would be a kind of more presentable or more charismatic Ed Miliband, and that he would basically stick to a kind of soft left politics. He hasn't even done that. Frankly, Ed Miliband looks better compared to Keir Starmer, which is saying something, given how uh, how flimsy he was. What's Starmer's politics, just being not the Tories? What else is there to his position? He's boxing himself into a corner because he's basically saying that he's not going to increase public spending because of the debt situation from COVID and from the financial fallout of the Truss budget last year. And that's boxed him into a corner because he's also saying he doesn't want to raise taxes because the tax burden is too high. And that's, of course, based on very iffy claims from a, from a think tank. It looks like Labour is trying to be the party of fiscal responsibility since Truss crashed things, which is a very strange place for them to be. I can't see how this is going to work out well in the long term. I think basically what Starmer is doing is he's taking for granted the core of Labour's vote in order to capture conservative voters. Uh, They're talking about a constituency they're describing as middle-aged mortgage man. It goes back to old new labor categories of this kind of quote-unquote aspirational lower middle class voter who's a little bit patriotic, a little bit socially liberal, and generally wants things to stay the same. He's very much in line with what Peter Mandelson and to some extent Tony Blair were talking about 25 years ago. They had a bit more to them in terms of an inspirational vision at the time. And yes, it was predicated on the fact that we had an unsustainable boom at the time, but it was possible to play that game in the late 90s. You refer uh, in your book to Blairites. The ideology seems obsolete, very much bound by the 90s and the bubbly prosperity of that time, and really irrelevant to a crisis-ridden present. What exactly do the Blairites stand for? What does that word mean now? It's hard to pin it down because really the labor right has had no ideas since... 2008, when the financial crisis hit and you know, obliterated their growth model. <laughs> what they've tended to do since Corbyn has defined themselves against the Labour left. At the policy level, they've had to adopt some of those policies to some degree and water them down heavily. At the same time, they're still tied to things like a more interventionist foreign policy. They're very much the pro-NATO. And to that extent, it's not very surprising. 
Starmer's also talking about healthcare reform because the NHS is in a deplorable state thanks to Tory misrule and the, the pandemic. It's a mishmash of old ideas and some new things they've picked up, ironically, from, from the Corbyn era. It does seem like uh, purging the Corbyn legacy is a lot of what they're about. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as Starmer became Labour leader, it was very clear that there was a shift taking place. Gradually, all the Corbynite figures were removed from the cabinet over various reasons. It's not worth going into because there's just too much of it at this point. And eventually, Corbyn himself was effectively purged. He's kind of in the Labour Party, but not standing as a Labour MP, which is pretty absurd. Many, many members have been suspended or removed in some cases. Many people have also just walked because they're tired of this trajectory or they feel that there's no hope at this point in the party, which is you know, it's very easy to see how they've reached that conclusion. The riots of 2011 play an important role in uh, the early part of your story. I've almost forgotten about them, but uh, I guess you, you all haven't. But what were they like? What, was they, what were they about? Um, what, uh, what were the political uh, ramifications of them? It's funny because I think most of us have forgotten about them in a way as well. It was a pretty intense few days. It's important, though, to remember that it began as a very much a political protest against police brutality. Uh, a young man called Mark Duggan had just been shot and killed. The response to that was a nonviolent protest outside Tottenham Police Station. That protest was, of course, ignored, as these things often are. Things spilled over into what the press called rioting and it then spread across the country and you had people looting stores and all the rest of it. And there was violence and buildings were burnt down. The right very much exploited it and ramped up the rhetoric of law and order, clean up the streets. There was a kind of racial element to that with the spectacle of white middle class people going out with brooms and whatnot to clean up their area. And it was portrayed in some quarters by certain right wingers as, oh, look, it's white people cleaning up after the angry black people. And a lot of people were locked up for things that were, yes, they were crimes under the law, but they were quite minor crimes. You know, people stealing things from supermarkets and then ending up with lengthy prison terms as a result because the press had ramped up the uh, right-wing narrative around all of this. And what were the political effects of it? It reinforced right-wing narratives in the country, I think, particularly a kind of hard-right reaction to what were perceived as kind of forms of social decay that the riots seemingly uh, represented for conservatives, particularly you know anti-immigrant, law and order conservatives. I think it did contribute to a kind of groundswell that was already building up for many years around issues such as immigration, anti-multiculturalism, and all of this came to a head with the Brexit vote. Yeah, so Brexit. The vote was over six years ago, but uh, the shock is still being felt, right? It's still very much a dominant feature in British politics. Yeah, it, it kind of colours everything. You know, it's the reason why in UK politics there seem to be flags everywhere. Union flags are throughout public life now in a way that they just weren't before. The Labour Party is very scared of criticising Brexit in a fundamental way. Starmer has talked about the purity cult of Brexit, but he's accepted the points-based immigration system being extended to EU nationals. He's effectively supporting the hostile environment to that degree, which is against migrants and asylum seekers. And he's, he signed off on the Brexit deal as the opposition. They voted for it. The class profile of the Brexit vote has been uh, much debated over. Uh, I guess there's a, a certain view of the Leave voters as a bunch of knuckle-dragging proles. You complicate uh, the, the class analysis of it. Could you Give us that outline. Yeah, it's very complicated. It's not the simple picture of a working class revolt. There is a working class element to all of this. There always is in terms of right-wing politics. We as progressives shouldn't kid ourselves that there are no like working class conservatives out there. But what's overlooked is the extent of elite support and the extent of a middle class that was pretty angry about some real issues and some issues that were matters of perception, you know, that they were blaming foreigners for the state of stagnation that they'd seen in their own lives, particularly since 2008, I think. And what people like Farage did was bring together a kind of coalition of different classes, really. You have working class people who have been skeptical of European integration for for reasons that aren't necessarily right-wing or even racist, although in some cases they are. In many cases, they simply see a correlation between joining the EU and their living standards and their jobs being affected negatively. But that's really because we joined in the 70s, 
neoliberalism in Britain took off in the 70s. I think it's quite clear which was to blame. <laughs> and it's also true that when it comes down to the north of England and the Midlands, which is often talked up in all of this, because again, a lot of the Brexit voters were in those constituencies, and many of them were also Labour voters. Some of them still are, of course. Um, there's the very useful concept, which I think you're all well aware of, of nationally poor but locally rich. You have people who may have bought their homes in the 70s or 80s, who are now pensioners. On paper, nationally, their income looks pretty low, their assets don't look amazing. But if you're in a socially deprived town, a former mining town, let's say, and you own your own home, you don't have your income being eaten up by rent, and you have your whole pension, you can live a, a pretty decent life. And you may not feel particularly aggrieved by things like austerity. And you may be more worried about who are these people who don't look like me who are turning up on the shores of Dover? What's happening to my grandchildren's future? Is it threatened by all this wokery and so on? <laughs> Whatever they may read in the Daily Mail or the Daily Express. God, there's a lot of that going around. Yes, there is. <laughs> Nostalgia for the lost empire, how significant a role did that play? It's definitely a factor. I'd say that's also quite complicated. What you have is a mixture of things going on. You have people like Farage, to some extent, harking to the idea of the Commonwealth and that we need to embrace our Commonwealth allies. Of course, the language of colonialism is, is buried slightly there because, of course, Commonwealth countries are our former colonies. He'll even pivot to saying, oh, I'm, I'm not anti-migrant. I'm for Kenyans and Indians, but I'm against Poles and Romanians. It's that kind of positioning. At the same time, you have people talking up the idea of global Britain, and that is very much a fantasy that comes straight out of kind of imperial history, the idea that Britain is this global presence culturally, politically, economically, and we can be that again if we just get away from the bloody Europeans, we can do it. <laughs> I don't mean to be blunt here, but uh, you know, Britain is looking pretty pathetic right now. It doesn't look very global. Yeah, absolutely. The Brexit dividend... <laughs> is non-existent. Instead, what we've got is the uh, what the FT is calling the trust moron premium. I strongly suspect that the COVID-19 pandemic has covered up a lot of the impact of Brexit in terms of its economic fallout, but that's only going to last so long. If you look at our recovery, as I'm sure you have, in terms of comparable data to other European economies, it's it's very clear that our recovery is pretty abysmal. Yeah, I mean, it's the weakest of all the rich countries, for sure. Yeah, that cannot just be because of the pandemic and how we bungled the response to it. I'm speaking with the journalist Josh White, author of Goodbye United Kingdom, just out from the battleground. Well, you've also had, what, more than a decade of austerity. Yes. And it, uh, the austerity was not certainly coming from the EU. The EU has imposed plenty of austerity on other people, but Britain's was homegrown, self-imposed. But uh, apparently it's all the EU's fault. Yeah, it's a funny old world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But just looking at political figures, you know, like it or not, Thatcher is an extremely formidable figure who changed Britain and to some degree the world. Mm, yeah. There's just been no replacement, no one of that kind of stature or power, prestige or, or transformative capacity. The Tory party seems shot for leadership. And then now that they're purging uh, Corbyn and the Corbynites, um, the Labour Party looks pretty bereft of any kind of uh, potential leadership figure. It just seems like the, I don't think Britain is alone in this, but the entire political class seems to be um, extraordinarily mediocre. Yeah, it's it's quite something to behold. Um, if you look at it historically, it's 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 kind of unprecedented because even if you went back twenty five years, there were more interesting people in the House of Commons. Tony Benn was still in the House of Commons, for example. And although I I disliked his politics, you had Enoch Powell who was still around. I mean, I very much oppose his agenda, but you know, you had a higher caliber of politician, is what I'm saying. Yeah, there's a big Thatcher shaped hole in the fabric of the Tory party. They've never quite got over uh, the Thatcher era. It's, it's similar to the Republicans with Reagan in that regard, that they're constantly looking for someone who can play that role again. And there just isn't anyone around like that. Likewise, Labour thought they had a kind of miracle worker with Blair, but it's, it's clear that his legacy wasn't as long lasting. He was just kind of building on uh, the Thatcherite settlement. You present some numbers on this, and I can't remember what they precisely are, but uh, the Conservatives have ruled Britain for, what, like 100 or the last 130 years or something like that, right? They just 
yeah. are, I guess, the natural party of government, as people say. And Labour has never really been able to challenge that. Yeah, Labour, despite being an electoralist party, isn't very good at winning elections, which is kind of a great irony, despite all the talk of electability and being serious about winning power. They've never been that good at it. Um, the most successful Labour politician in the party's history is still Harold Wilson, who won four elections. His achievements were a mixture of social democracy in the 60s and a mixture of social liberalism turning towards neoliberalism in the 70s, though I don't think that was intentional on his part. And Blair, it's it's just it's a kind of socially progressive neoliberalism. And I'm not even sure that Starmer is going to deliver that. It's looking pretty dismal. And before Trust came along and sunk the Tories' credibility, it was a realistic prospect that Labour could just become a rump party in the next 10, 20 years. There's no reason to expect them to be the opposition forever. You know, They could just sink into irrelevance. They've benefited enormously from the crisis that happened under Trust, and they're still riding high from that. But how long is that going to last, especially if they win the next election and they're suddenly faced with strikes, protests, pressure from the left whom they clearly despise? Are they going to make concessions? Are they going to draft up radical policies? Or are they going to try and stamp people out and effectively run to the right to try and satisfy the media and the establishment? You have a sentence uh, in there. I don't mean to embarrass you by quoting this. I'm just curious what happened, actually. Uh, you say Johnson will be replaced by some fresh face with the right message to unite the country. Maybe Rishi Sunak, maybe Liz Truss. That's what some pundits want you to believe. Of course, that's precisely what happened. Why did that happen? Nobody can foretell the future. I'm not uh, giving you a hard time for that. But it was not what was expected from the situation. So well, how did things turn out that way? Well, there was, a, there was a kind of groundswell around Truss in particular among Tory members. But she's the reincarnation of Margaret Thatcher, right? Yeah, there was, there was a lot of strange stuff about that. She even dressed up as her during a debate, and she had this just awful photo op on a tank, again, playing up the militarist imagery as much as possible, which Thatcher also did at the height of the Falklands War. Whereas Rishi Sunak was more of the MP's candidate. His constituency was parliamentary and within the media class. He wasn't a figure who was popular among Tory members, whereas she was more of a kind of outsider candidate. My only qualm with what I wrote before was that I've characterised them as kind of fresh-faced and able to articulate a vision that's building on what Boris did. In some ways, I think Boris was probably the better Tory leader for them, you know, in terms of what their base wants. There's talk of him making a comeback later this year, if you can believe that. <laughs> Yeah, he had some energy and charisma. Um, if yeah. you're gonna, like, if you're heading down the drain, you might as well be entertained while you're heading there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Also, he was extremely flexible when it came to policy. He could he could basically back anything because he, yeah, well, he, he had was, all these big spending plans. I interviewed James Meadway, I think, shortly after he took power, and Meadway is saying, you know, the Labour um, is going to have to deal with this. That uh, he was uh, abandoning all that austerity and throwing money at the North. That didn't save him. No, ultimately not because of internal dynamics in the Tory party and the media onslaught because of Partygate, so-called. I don't know I don't know how much uh, Americans followed that, but Partygate was... It turned out that Johnson and his cabinet and advisors and so on were having parties at number 10 during the height of lockdown when the rest of the country was in a state of shutdown and people couldn't even go to see dying relatives and... Yeah, there was an obvious outpouring of anger over this. He was briefly saved by Ukraine. He would have probably stepped down in January or February last year had it not been for Ukraine, to be honest. The UK is a strange country. I mean, it can't even settle on a proper name. It was the United Kingdom, is it Great Britain? You know, then you have all these constituents, parts. Yeah. And I guess you could say, this is Tom Nairn's argument years ago, that the monarchy provided some kind of national unity that was otherwise lacking. But now the monarchy looks like it's fraying too. So is Britain just going to fall apart? It's going to break into its pieces? I think it's quite likely, even though the monarchy will probably persist. It's quite likely that you'll see Northern Ireland uh, move in its own direction, perhaps towards unification in the next 10 to 20 years. That's a very short time frame, but it's, it's possible it could take longer as well. And Scottish nationalism, it's still very much on the agenda. The Scottish government is pushing for either greater powers or a referendum, and the Tories are standing in the way of that. And at the same time, you have 
a Welsh Labour government which has kind of won over Welsh cultural nationalism and tied it to a kind of centre-left politics. But they don't seem to be opting for the same kind of independence movement that, say, the SNP is. It may, it may be the case that the UK breaks up and England and Wales end up stuck together. Did you want me to comment on the monarchy a bit more? Or? Oh, yeah. From a distance, it looks like the family is completely falling apart and the institution is looking like it just its prestige seems to be collapsing. As is the case with um, the political class, the, the the royal class also seems to be declining in quality. Charles is, at least to me, something of a joke. And then you have all the children fighting with each other. Can that thing hold on? Sadly, I think it will. <laughs> I mean, A, there's no constitutional framework for getting rid of it at this point. However, in terms of public opinion, which is a key factor in all of this, despite the fact that it is a shambles, the royals are managing to spin the whole Harry Meghan uh, furore into their favour, at least to the favour of uh, William and Charles for now, which is, is quite remarkable. As a Republican who's fairly internationally aware, I know how completely different it looks from outside. But here, there's a lot of public anger against, against Harry and Meghan that's been whipped up by the tabloids. Whether that will last in perpetuity is another matter, especially as as Charles is likely to be more controversial than Elizabeth was, just because he's, well, never mind his history, but he's he's a lot less restrained when it comes to making political statements and a lot less restrained in terms of his public appearances. You may have seen the clips of him losing his temper over a pen, that kind of thing. Yeah, there are a lot of stories like that. Like he just throws things at people and <laughs> he's yeah. threatening his valet, right? That's... Yeah. Uh, not not the dignity we uh, expected from his uh, his mother. Well, exactly. She was very good at, at being a kind of blank slate onto which everyone could project their kind of national fantasy onto. And that's why she was extremely popular. In the collective memory of, of British people, she still is. Charles splits opinion, very much so, ever since what happened in the early 90s with, with Diana and, of course, her, her terrible death. And now we have the situation where the media is playing a similar role, where you have members of the family briefing against each other in a kind of press war. I mean, I saw a remarkable poll figure the other day that shows that people in their 60s, I think, 50s and 60s, who read the Dead Tree Press, they have a more negative impression of Prince Harry than they have of Prince Andrew. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's pretty astounding. But that's that shows you just how, how well the media have worked on this over here. In some, it seems like um, you're living in the midst of, well, I certainly feel this way about my own civilization, but I'm saying it does seem like a rotting civilization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels like we're in a kind of peak decline, <laughs> if that's a thing, you know. It feels like Britain has been declining for an awfully long time, but it's been accelerated in the last six, seven years, really. Even before the Brexit campaign, I think really the austerity years and the post-2008 years, it was very clear that we've entered a period of stagnation and our politics has reflected that. And that's why it's resulted in you know, some very ugly and strange things happening. Being an American, I have to ask you if there are any signs of hope. I would say that the most hopeful thing right now is that there is a rising union militancy. The teachers have voted for a strike in February. That's going ahead with multiple other strikes. We've recently had strikes from the nurses, who are probably the most popular people in the country in terms of profession. And we have ongoing train strikes uh, from, from the RMT, probably the most militant trade union in the country. We also have the emergence of ACORN in multiple cities across the UK, aping ACORN US, of course. And they're responding very much to the housing crisis. These are the grassroots, I would say. These are the probably the the green shoots that we should look towards in a, in a hopeful way. As much as the political class is deeply rotten and it seems like everything is falling apart, there is, there is hope in that working people are getting back to fighting for their interests. That was Josh White, author of Goodbye United Kingdom from the book arm of The Battleground. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Oh, welcome back to Chipping and Sudbury You can have a second chance It 
must all be like second nature Cutting down the people where they stand According to the latest score Mr. Enoch Powell is a falling star So in the future please bear in mind Don't see clear, don't see far When the average social director Mistakes a passenger for the conductor It's so shocking to see the old church of E Looking down on you and me That was some of Graham Greene from Paris 1919 by John Cale. Next, the history of the fight for legal abortion in the U.S. My next guest, Felicia Cornblue, is just out with A Woman's Life as a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice, published by Grove Press. Its core message is that the fight for abortion rights must be part of a larger struggle. Her day job is as a professor of history and gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the University of Vermont. She's also the vice president of the Vermont Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Felicia Cornblue. So there are two characters who uh, play a prominent role in your book. One, your mother, and the other, Helen Rodriguez-Trias, who is uh, a neighbor of hers and yours growing up. Describe their roles just uh, briefly before we get into uh, the other issues in the book. I started this project thinking about my mother just before my mother died and after she had a disabling stroke. And I learned that my mother played a pivotal role in the decriminalization of abortion in New York State. And I also learned that New York was really the pivotal state before Roe versus Wade. And what the reformers were able to do in New York was a key but almost totally forgotten launching point for Roe. That's one piece of the story. And to some degree, intention with that is the story that I was drawn to based on this next door neighbor of ours, Helen Rodriguez-Trias, who is really an unsung hero of the modern women's movement. And Helen uh, was a Puerto Rican doctor who co-founded two organizations that were on the left of the reproductive rights movement and really in critical relationship with the the mainstream women's movement, mainstream repro rights movement. And what they were calling for was an end to sterilization abuse which was really happening in the 60s and 70s, especially to Black women and Latinas and Native American women. But her roots in Puerto Rico are also very relevant, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because she came from Puerto Rico and it sort of divided her life and career between San Juan and New York City, she knew about sterilization abuse and how that could become a key part of a government's uh, policy, no matter what people themselves wanted for their families or what size of family they wanted. And in Puerto Rico, right, by the end of the 1960s, we have very dependable data that tell us that 35% or more of all women of reproductive age had been sterilized. And they saw the same thing happening years afterward on the U.S. mainland to Latinas, in particular Puerto Ricans, Mexican-American women. And they saw it happening in Indian health service clinics that were serving Native, Indigenous women. And they saw it happening to working class and poor white women, too. Early on in the book, you make the point that there were splits or a lack of common interest between people who are fighting for abortion rights uh, and a broader sense of reproductive rights, uh, which could be symbolized by these two women who had different concerns, even though they're often crossed paths. Um, what did that uh, tension or that gap do to uh, the broader movement over the long term? I think it tore the movement apart in really consequential ways that we still haven't addressed. When we're recording, it's just a day after the 50th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade opinion. And almost all of the discourse was about abortion, right? And access to abortion. And of course, that's critically important. It's important for all kinds of people, right? Of different classes and different racial backgrounds. Like, I'm not denying that in any way. And, and the folks I'm writing about didn't deny it either. However, there were many people who became aware just as the Roe opinion was coming down that it wasn't nearly enough. You know, if you had a crappy hospital where you didn't have attentive medical care, you know, or if you just were shut out from good private health insurance and there was no public alternative because you weren't a citizen, you know, like for all these reasons, 
people could still have devastating experiences around abortion and around all of their reproductive choices because of racism, because of class differences, because of the, the nature of the U.S. healthcare system. And yet folks like my mother, who who I remember with great reverence and respect, they really didn't get it, that there were other people, other women who just had completely different experiences and who had different needs. And I think the mainstream of the of the women's movement, the mainstream of the repro rights movement still really hasn't gotten its head around that. It hasn't gotten its head around the mistakes they made back then in the 70s and 80s. And they haven't fully done the reparative work that they need to do now. The movement for decriminalizing abortion um, often made alliances with some unseemly characters like uh, Garrett Hardin uh, and uh, these movements for population control, eugenics. The Rockefeller family was all over that sort of thing. What about those alliances, those unseemly alliances? Exactly. Well, I would say it even a little more strongly than unseemly alliances. Some of the pivotal activists and advocates for legalizing abortion or decriminalizing abortion were themselves people who had incredibly racist views. You could say they were in the thrall of, or they were in some ways the architects of a post-World War II ideology called population control, which was in a lot of ways a, a rebirth of the eugenics of the early part of the 20th century. We are not dealing with this. Two of the three primary founders of the, the group that becomes NARAL, today NARAL Pro-Choice America, were population control advocates, including this guy named Garrett Hardin, who late in his life became a raging anti-immigrant activist. And the Southern Poverty Law Center referred to his ideas as, quote unquote, fascist. And I'm not saying NARAL is a bad organization. I'm saying that there's internal work to do. There is a cliche that abortion is an issue of liberal white ladies. Uh, and the, the history you tell uh, is considerably more complicated than that. So complicated for us. It is complicated. You could sort of stereotype this story as it was the liberal white ladies who fought for abortion, and then it was the, the people of color who fought against sterilization abuse and fought for a kind of a wider agenda. But it's really not like that, because the thing about abortion access is that abortion access itself is a matter of racial and class justice. Just as there are today, back in the 60s, there were a lot of advocates who came from communities of color and who were representing working class people who were fiercely in favor of abortion rights. Percy Sutton, who was an assemblyman from Harlem, a black assemblyman who had come from the South and participated in the freedom rights. Um, and he became Malcolm X's lawyer. And then when Malcolm X was assassinated, he became Betty Shabazz's lawyer. And he introduced the first reform statute on the abortion issue into the New York State Assembly because he knew what was happening in Harlem. I also write a lot about uh, Flo Kennedy, Florence Kennedy, who was an attorney and a black radical who also was one of the founding members of the New York chapter of the National Organization for Women. Now, my mom was also in New York now. She and Flo Kennedy did not have a lot in common. And yet they both were involved in women's civil rights through NOW. NOW is a women's civil rights organization. And they both understood abortion as critically important to women's civil rights. Lots of people understood that abortion alone wasn't enough, but it was essential. And even now itself, people think of it as a prototypical liberal organization, but uh, its actual political history uh, in its early days was more complicated. Was a mix of uh, liberals and uh, people to the left of liberals. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I looked at the attendance list of that first meeting, and there's Flo Kennedy, who was organizing with Black radicals and working later with the Black Panther Party. There she was at the first New York Now meeting. Gerda Lerner, who was basically a communist, a very important feminist writer and historian. She was at that meeting. So were a lot of liberal Democrats who were reform Democrats. They were trying to pull the Democratic Party to the left. And then Betty Friedan herself, who was one of the founders of Now, the first president of Now, who wrote The Feminine Mystique, right? She had a background in which she was at least a fellow traveler in the Communist Party, maybe more than a fellow traveler. Historians have never been able to really sort that out. But she comes from a labor left background. She worked for the United Electrical Workers Union, which was a real activist union that was closely affiliated with the CP. Women's civil rights was understood as a cause that was related to labor rights, you know, working class women's rights. And it was understood as part of this effort 
to pull American politics to the left after the doldrums of the 1950s, and especially to wake up the Democratic Party. We often think of opposition to abortion as being led by clergy people, but uh, you have a chapter on a clergy abortion referral service, which is very interesting. Tell us about who they were and what they did. Yeah, one of the arguments I want to make in the book is that people and institutions of faith, you know, whatever faith, really need to be actively involved. And it's just unfair for the religious position on abortion to be the position of the most conservative American Catholics. And so I tell the history of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, which was headquartered in New York at Judson Memorial Church in the West Village. It was a coalition of mostly liberal Protestant clergy and liberal Jewish clergy from all across the the Protestant and Jewish denominational spectrum. They referred people who wanted abortions to safe practitioners, always doctors. They used to claim that what they were doing was legal. It wasn't really legal. Basically, it was illegal. Basically, they were breaking the law. And they were very much inspired by the Black Civil Rights Movement, including, including the Black Civil Rights Movement that was operating in the North. They were driven into breaking the law and performing this kind of grassroots civil disobedience, in part because they felt like as clergy people, they needed to serve um, people who needed this kind of pastoral service of being referred for safe abortion procedures. But also, it was a strategy, like all civil disobedience strategies, it was a strategy to bring down what they saw as an immoral legal regime. They were sort of calling the question and saying to the folks who were enforcing these um, abortion criminalization laws, come and get us. You know, if you want to arrest a bunch of people of the cloth, bring it on. And if you do arrest us, then we're going to have a big public trial and we're going to call out this immoral law. Um, But if you don't arrest us, then we're also going to effectively make the law a dead letter, right? We're going to say effectively, this is an unworkable law. It was a one-to-one strategy, you know, each individual person being referred individually for a safe abortion, but it had this kind of collective consciousness to it. And for me, it was so important to read this story because I think even today when people participate in in whatever liberal congregation they might be participating in or other community groups that we might be part of, like, you know, we get together and we read a book about racial justice and we feel really good about that. Or we get together and we sign a petition. Like, these are people who are basically prepared to go to jail. They're prepared to bring down an unjust legal regime by any means necessary. I don't see a lot of the members of my synagogue reading group being willing to do that today. And I think we should be, you know, if we really care, then how come we're not doing that? I wanted to ask that question. I'm speaking with the historian Felicia Cornblue, author of A Woman's Life is a Human Life, just out from Grove Press. Back to the, the movement to decriminalize abortion in New York State. There's an interesting and I think productive mix of liberals and radicals involved. We talked about that a little bit earlier. But uh, one of the things that really got things moving was the intervention of the Red Stockings. Um, who are they and uh, what was their contribution? Red Stockings is one of the paradigmatic groups from the women's liberation movement. They weren't the first group. Um, they were sort of a second wave in women's liberation organizing. But the waves happened very fast on top of each other in that period. You know, in the late 1960s, things were very combustible. People were learning very fast. So Red Stockings emerges from other women's liberation groups, and it's it's helmed by these two brilliant Um, I would say radical feminists, socialist feminists, um, Ellen Willis, who later became the central thinker around what was called pro-sex feminist politics. She was opposed to the regulation of uh, pornography and prostitution. And her partner in this was Shulamith Firestone, who was a, a brilliant feminist theorist who wrote a book called The Dialectic of Sex that was really trying to do for women's rights what Karl Marx had done for the rights of working people. I mean, really ambitious, right? So anyway, they started this group. And what they did was they brought confrontational 1960s style tactics to the movement to decriminalize abortion, first by shutting down state legislative hearings, where nobody from the feminist movement was invited to testify. The only woman who was invited to testify was a nun who was anti-abortion. And they thought that was a complete outrage. Um, so they shut that down, yelling things like, talk to the real experts. Women are the real experts. We know what this is really doing to us. 
they made it impossible for the hearing to go on. And then they organized the world's first speak out at Judson Memorial Church, where women came forward and told the stories of the abortions they had, the abortions they wanted to have, but couldn't have, the laws they broke, the dangers that they experienced when they sought abortion care. That was really a revelation in the movement. It was actually at that speak out that a young journalist named Gloria Steinem became a feminist. For her, that was the click moment where she suddenly realized she wasn't alone and that some of the things she had experienced were were systemic and structural. They weren't just her problem. Red Stockings played that absolutely critical role. And even though they were very ambivalent about legislation, because that was sort of a moderate tactic and they weren't really into moderate tactics, they really helped create the momentum for changing the abortion law in New York and thus, you know, setting the stage for Roe versus Wade. Your mother wrote a draft abortion repeal law, Senator, Senator uh, then State Senator Franz Leichter. I guess he's in the Assembly then still. What happened with that draft bill? Uh, what was the legislative history that uh, ended up with the, the repeal of uh, the criminalization of abortion? In the course of doing my research, I discovered that my mother's role was really a pivotal one. So in this document that I found in the basement of the legal historian David Garrow, my mother outlined the first ever state law in U.S. history that was a full repeal of all abortion restrictions. Before the 19th century, there was no legislation on abortion in the United States. There was no state law on abortion. There was just the the common law that we inherited from England. In the 19th century, states criminalize abortion for the first time. And what my mother's law did, representing the position of the National Organization for Women and also the position of more radical feminists, was to say, just take it out of the legal code entirely. This is none of the government's business, and people should be able to decide for themselves, with their clergy members, with their family members, with their doctors, what they want to do, right, if they want to seek an abortion or not. So it was a clean repeal. And that actually was introduced into the New York State Legislature in January 1969 by a Republican woman and by this Democratic man who was our assembly person, Franz Leister, who was a refugee from uh, the Nazis in Austria. And that law became the basis for a new chapter in the movement um, that was focused on what was called then repeal, full repeal of all restrictions. That was the rallying point. Now, New York didn't pass that, right? Actually, New York still doesn't have, (laughs) still doesn't have what my mother wanted in 1968, 69. But they amended down from my mother's draft and still wound up with what was and arguably the most liberal abortion law in the United States. So what New York finally was able to pass was a law that said that through 24 weeks of a pregnancy, the pregnant person was completely free to do whatever they wanted, absolutely no restrictions, right? And it was only after that point that the state could regulate um, because of concerns about health or medical quality or something like that. And then the other key thing was there was no residency requirement. So people could and did come from all over the United States and even other countries to New York in order to have safe, legal, and relatively affordable abortion procedures. It was utterly transformative. But of course, there immediately a backlash started, right? Uh, The right to life movement grew, and then there were these uh, efforts to uh, introduce uh, restrictions or qualifications to the law. How did that play out? Yeah, the other thing about what happened in New York that that made it historically important and also set the stage for Roe is that it became the occasion for the for the galvanizing of the right to life movement. That movement had been, you know, pretty small, pretty weak and and really overwhelmingly Catholic and dominated by Catholic hierarchy, conservative Catholic hierarchy. After New York changes its law and the Catholic hierarchy and their allies see that it's possible for states to do this kind of thing, then they really mobilize and they try very hard first legislatively to overturn the New York law. And then they also try in the courts. And it's the very first time that they go into the courts claiming that fetuses have rights. They try and bring quote unquote fetal rights under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, right? Saying that basically fetuses have all the rights of of already born persons, and therefore abortion should be unconstitutional. 
That argument is completely rejected by the Supreme Court in those days. Stay tuned. (laughs) We may see something different. But in those days, there was no traction for that argument in the Supreme Court. But the fact that the New York law was so vulnerable and that it created this kind of chaotic, crazy situation where people didn't know one year to the next whether this right that had been established by legislation was going to last, right? That in itself drove the Supreme Court to try and settle the issue. I think the court was trying to make it more equal. They didn't want a situation where people in New York had access to this kind of safe legal medical procedure and people in the rest of the country didn't have it, right? And they also didn't want this instability. You know, the Supreme Court doesn't generally or didn't used to at least like that kind of thing where people have a right that's established by legislation and then it can, you know, it can disappear with the wave of a wand or a shifting legislative majority. So they were trying to kind of enshrine it and make it more stable. Obviously that didn't happen and the rest is the last five decades of of history. But I think that what happened in New York, even the backlash in New York, set the stage for Roe versus Wade. I would say, though, it does seem that a lot of uh, people who've been fighting for abortion have relied very heavily on litigation and not enough on popular organization, because what produced abortion liberalization in the first place was a very broad and successful popular movement. That side of it has kind of died out over the decades. Yes, I think that's true. And I think when we remember what what was really required to win in the 60s and 70s, it helps us understand what we need to win today. People who just won these big uh, referenda campaigns in Kansas and Michigan and other states, even my own home state of Vermont, like this will not be news to them. But I think there may be some organizing tips and some comfort to be gained from understanding that as hard as the struggle seems today, it was just as hard back then. There was no background understanding on the part of the Supreme Court justices. They weren't hoping <laughs> that they would you know, get to rule on this issue. They weren't looking for an opportunity to enshrine constitutional privacy rights regarding abortion, right? All of that had to be created from the bottom up by this robust, intelligent, quickly changing, you know, thinking on its feet, activist social movement with all kinds of different parts and all kinds of different people. That's what we need today too. Turning to another side of the story, um, the young lords and their occupation of Lincoln Hospital. What was that about and what were the results of that? The young lords were a militant Puerto Rican organization, kind of like the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And they worked really closely with the Black Panthers in New York. They started to demand health care rights comparable to any other kinds of rights that people were demanding. And they also demanded that healthcare facilities be under community control. That was sort of a buzzword of the period. It was coming out of a lot of the the politics around education and education reform, um, that the schools had to be responsive to their communities. They had to be under quote unquote community control. So they said the same thing. The young lord said the same thing about hospitals and other healthcare settings. And they focused on Lincoln, which was a terrible hospital in those days. Terrible in terms of staffing, in terms of sanitary environment, in terms of equipment, in terms of wait times, like on every measure, it was really a crappy hospital. It's a public hospital, right, under the New York City system. So they took over part of the hospital and they demanded community control of healthcare. And they also demanded things like childcare for people while they were waiting. Um, they, they demanded that there be, you know, a meaningful way for people to process complaints when they weren't being served appropriately. And they started to raise questions about sterilization abuse, what they perceived as excessive numbers of sterilizations that were happening to Black and Puerto Rican patients, in particular in that hospital and elsewhere in the New York public system. They didn't occupy the hospital for very long. They, you know, they eventually left, but they became very, very important in the neighborhood. And shortly after they left the hospital, a woman died of an abortion procedure at the hospital. It was really eye-opening for people at the time. I mean, of course, horribly tragic. She died after abortion became legal in New York State. For the Puerto Rican militants and Black militants and their white allies too, they understood that just making abortion legal was not going to be enough, right? If it was still a crappy hospital, if you were still segregated on the basis of what kind of insurance you had, that shaped everything. 
it drove them, the, the women of the young lords, and then the young lords at a larger level, and then ultimately other left-wing activists like this neighbor of mine, Helen Rodriguez Trias, to understand that they needed a politics that went beyond abortion, that went beyond making abortion legal. What lessons are there from this history uh, for the present? Well, I would start with what I just said about the young lords. Even though that was also 50 years ago, I think we really have not fully assimilated those lessons. Even today, you know, we have somewhat siloed conversations. There's the abortion conversation in, in one place, and then we have another conversation about how we need to transform the healthcare system. It, it is appropriately the same conversation because of the kind of healthcare system we have and because of what's going on right now with, you know, hospitals closing and all this corporate centralization of healthcare and, of course, our insane American insurance system. It's still true that legalizing abortion is just the thinnest kind of minimum or start. Not only is it more true, but I think it's better politics for us to demand the whole enchilada and not just demand legal abortion. Demanding legal abortion is critically important, but the more we can talk about people's right to adequate health, their right to adequate health care, and abortion as a part of that, contraception as part of that, you know, the more we can talk about people's right to have children, you know, not just their right to refrain from having children via abortion or contraception, right? What does it take for people to be able to really make a free choice about whether to have kids, right? Well, they have to be free from violence. They have to have some economic resources, right? That is a really compelling and winning politics. I still just don't hear it from Planned Parenthood or NARAL or the National Organization for Women. I think the time for that is now. That was Felicia Kornbluh, Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Vermont. Her book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, is just out from Grove Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a bit of Chosen to Deserve by the North Carolina-based band Wednesday from their forthcoming album, Rat Saw God. Till next week, bye. So you